You may be seated. Since our Easter celebration, we have been looking at some of the texts that take place and the stories that take place in the wake of the resurrection of Jesus with some wonderment around what does life look like on this side of the empty tomb. And today we are looking at one of the perhaps more familiar stories of the walk to Emmaus on the road to Emmaus that we found in Luke's gospel, the 24th chapter, beginning at the 13th verse. Hear the word of God. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place in these days? And he asked them, what things? And they replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and, and how our chief priests lead, and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. And then he said to them, oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself and all the scriptures they came near the village to which they were going he walked ahead as if he were going on but they urged him strongly saying oh stay with us because it's almost evening and the day is now nearly over so he went in to stay with them and when he was at the table with them he took bread blessed and broke it and gave it to them and then their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? And that same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord is risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we pray, O Lord, that you will allow these words to come to point to the word just read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ, where we pray this in his name. Amen. 
Our little nuclear McConnell family has made, its, made it, our, it our tradition to pack up our bags each summer and to make our way up north to a little beach town up on the Atlantic shore in New Jersey. A couple of Sundays every summer, I serve as a guest preacher at the little chapel in the middle of this little town. And there's a little market in the town where you can buy all sorts of sundry things, including a bagel for breakfast and a sandwich for lunch. And there are a couple of tables in this market at which you can sit and enjoy your meal. Upon one of my visits to this market, I was standing in line to make a purchase, and I noticed sitting at one of the tables, Tony Soprano. James Gandolfini in real life. He lived a couple towns over. But there he was, Tony Sam Soprano. This was back when the Sopranos were the 90s version of Game of Thrones. Everybody knew Tony Soprano. Now, next to Tony Soprano was sitting a young boy, maybe 12 or 13, sitting with his eyes staring down, staring at his Game Boy device. So fixated was he with this device that he was oblivious to the fact that he was sitting next to Tony Soprano. There was Tony Soprano right next to him reading a newspaper. I could not keep my eyes off this odd couple because I was hoping to see what might happen when the young boy realized who he was sitting next to. So in a couple of minutes, who, when a couple of minutes later, his father, who was behind me in line, whispered loudly the boy's name to get his attention. Tommy. Tommy. The boy looked up at his father, and his father made a gesture with his head to say, look who's next to you, which the boy did, and then came the epiphany, and no words of mine could aptly describe the expression on this kid's face. Awe, terror, surprise, shock, none of those words do it justice, but there he just sat. And with a, in a few seconds, Tony Soprano closed up his newspaper, got up, and walked out. The boy watched and stared as Tony Soprano disappeared out the door. It must have taken him at least 10 seconds before he returned to his Game Boy. <laughs> Sometimes you just don't know who might right, be right there next to you. If there's anything consistent with the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus recorded in the New Testament, it is that for just about everybody, it takes a good while to figure out who is right there next to them. Four weeks ago, we heard about Mary Magdalene outside the empty tomb, staring straight at Jesus and assuming he's the gardener. A couple weeks ago, we heard the story of the disciples arriving at the shore of the Sea of Galilee and seeing the figure of a man in the dawn's shadows, and it takes them a while to figure out that it's the resurrected Jesus. And in today's story we just read, we read of Jesus, two of Jesus' followers, shrouded by the despair of his crucifixion, joined by the resurrected Jesus on the road to Emmaus, and even though Jesus tells them the gracious story of his own mission and purpose. The two travelers cannot quite put two and two together, and it's only when Jesus takes a loaf of bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to them in their meal that their eyes are opened and they recognize him. And just as they recognize him, he disappears. Sometimes you just don't know who's there right next to you. But that has been the promise, hasn't it? I will be with you, Jesus says, until the close of the age, which are not only some of the more reassuring words of the New Testament, but also some of the most mysterious. If Jesus is with us, how do we know? 
What, what kind of appearances does Jesus make? And how do we know it's really Jesus? What kind of spiritual glasses do we need to have on in order to see the resurrected Christ? Who among the masses is the real Jesus? Sort of like those, you know, where's Waldo little puzzles where you're given the chance of picking out the bespectacled striped shirt boy Waldo amidst the crowd on the page. Where's Waldo? I will spare you looking for Waldo in that picture on the front of your bulletin for the rest of my sermon and tell you that he's in the upper left-hand corner sitting next to the table. <laughs> so where's Jesus? How do we know that Jesus is here? If someone were to tell you that they saw and talked to Jesus the other day, what might you think about that? Would you recommend a doctor? Lily Tomlin wondered once, how come if we talk to God, we're said to be praying, but if God talks to us, we're said to be schizophrenic? Good question. But a better question is, how do we discern the promised presence of the resurrected Christ in this world of ours 2,000 years since his first appearing? Well, I wonder if the story of the Emmaus Road journey might give us some clues. Something happens to these two people, Luke tells us, that strangely warms their hearts, to borrow a phrase from John Wesley, that strangely warms their hearts and suddenly opens their eyes. Something happens to these two that, that strangely warms their hearts and mysteriously opens their eyes. And the two things it seems to happen are, one, Jesus tells them his story. Jesus tells them the story of grace. And then, two, Jesus acts out the story. Jesus tells the story of grace and then Jesus acts it out. Were not our hearts warmed, they say, when he told us that story, the story of God's love and compassion and sacrifice and resurrection? And were not our eyes opened when he acted out the grace by blessing and breaking and giving us the bread, telling the story and then acting out the story? Because it wasn't the first time that Jesus did these things. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus keeps telling the disciples about how the story is going to go. The Son of God will be humbled. He will walk our paths. He will teach us mercy. He will suffer nothing less than what we suffer. He will sacrifice himself, and he will be raised up on the third day. He told them that story over and over and over again. And not only did he tell them that story, he told them all kinds of stories of grace about the father of the prodigal son who runs to meet him, his wayward boy, when and he comes home and kills the fatted calf and strikes up the band because he's got his boy home again. Or the culturally suspicious Samaritan who turns out to be the one who helps the, be who helps the beaten man on the road and maxes out his credit card to make sure the man gets better. Or the latecomer vineyard workers who put in only a one hour's work in the fields, yet they still get the full day's pay. Jesus was always telling these stories of ridiculous grace. But he didn't just tell the story, he acted out the story. How many times in his ministry did Jesus break the bread and feed those who hungered? In feeding the 5,000, Jesus takes, blesses, breaks, and gives the bread. With his disciples at Passover, Jesus takes, blesses, and gives the bread. With, and on the cross, Jesus offers himself up 
as the bread of life and is blessed and broken and given for the world. Jesus not only tells the story, he acts out the story. And our hearts are strangely warmed and our eyes are finally, finally opened. And what do our eyes open to? Our eyes open to the way the world is really supposed to be. Because, you know, life has this way of doing a bait and switch on us. Life has this way of convincing us that the story in the end is a bad one. Life has this way of telling us that all the bad things that can happen, telling us about all the bad things that will happen, all the bad things we can do to one another and say to one another, all the same old shenanigans of people in the press and politics who want to make the world out to be something really, really bad. And we buy it. And we shroud ourselves with this pall of death. We can look up at the injustice of the cross and the betrayal of the disciples and the indifference of the powers that be, and we can wonder, is that just the way the story's supposed to go? Where's Jesus in all this? You say, I'm going to be with you to the close of the age, Jesus, but where? And Jesus says, listen to the story of grace and watch the story of grace get acted out right in front of you. You remember that great story of grace, Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. You remember the story of Jean Valjean, the man hardened by 19 years on the chain gang for stealing a loaf of bread for his family. And when he's finally let go from his imprisonment, he stumbles into the gracious hospitality of a bishop who welcomes him, brings him to table, feeds him, and gives him a bed to sleep in. But in the middle of the night, Valjean gets up and steals the bishop's silver. And later, when he's caught and brought before the bishop to be identified and charged, the bishop hands him the silver candlesticks and says, you left in such a hurry, you forgot these. And then life from that point is never the same. Grace has broken in, and Jean Valjean's heart is strangely warmed. His eyes are opened, and he never lets go those candlesticks for the rest of his life, because through them, he's seen the resurrected Jesus. Speaking of a Frenchman named Jean, last week the world lost one of its saints, Jean Vanier. Likely you've read his story, founder of the L'Arche Communities over 50 years while working in a psychiatric hospital in Paris. Vanier was overwhelmed by the sense of loneliness and despair of the patients who had been left there to eke out their existence. So he took it upon himself to purchase an old dilapidated house outside of Paris and invited to live with him two of the patients in this psychiatric hospital. And they came and they lived with him and they became a family, a community, and they broke bread together. And it was from this breaking bread together that Vanier modeled what came to be known as the Larche Movement group homes that slowly spread across the globe, which now house 10,000 people of profound disability paired one-to-one -one with people called assistants who live with them and work with them and break bread together with them and share their own weakness with them. Through the, through the life of what Michael Gerson calls wildly inefficient compassion. 
And while the world may have cold institutional ways by which we treat people with disability, it is in these caring communities that the light shines in the darkness and reminds us that the real world is when we come together and we break bread. It's what the word companion comes from, the Latin companis, which means with bread. And people ask, where is the resurrected Jesus? And Jesus says, I'm in the companionship. I'm in the breaking of the bread. And our hearts are strangely warmed. And our eyes are open. I never saw it. I never saw it when I was a kid, and my mother insisted I be at the dinner table at 6 p.m. every night. And in that moment, I couldn't see it. This story of grace, mom, dad, brothers, me, breaking bread, the resurrected Jesus. Father Gregory Boyle, who has made it his life and mission to be companion to the gangs in East Los Angeles, Father Boyle, whom I'm happy to say will be with us next January to tell of his work of walking alongside these kids whom the world has given up on, this wildly inefficient compassion of walking alongside kids who are at risk he tells the story of one of his companions, a young man named Andres. Andres was abandoned by his mother and eventually left to live on the streets. Over time, he came eventually under the influence of Father Boyle's ministry, a ministry called Homeboy Industries, and he found new companions. And over time, the disability of his past is redeemed and recreated into a young man who sees hope and lives hope. And Andres tells to Father Boyle about the night when he was returning home after a late night fast food dinner and his path took him by a neighborhood park where he noticed a homeless man propped up and sleeping with a half empty bottle of beer by his side. And Andres reports that his heart was strangely warm and his eyes were suddenly open because what he saw on that bench was not just some anonymous poor drunkard, what he saw was himself. Because it came back to him that on that very bench he had once slept. So with warmed heart and opened eyes, Andres took his favorite sweater off his own back and laid it across the man, companions for a moment. And people ask, where is this resurrected Jesus? And Jesus says, I'm in this story. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness won't overcome it. The truth is, we all have our own park benches, right? We all have those places and times when the world with its bad story deals us a harsh blow and throws its pall of death upon us. And it can be hard to see through the shadows this living one in our midst. But then comes that unexpected kindness or that surprising touch of grace or that wildly 
inefficient compassion, that broken loaf, and the cold heart turns warm, the blind eye begins to see, and hope begins to rise, and we begin to see the image of Jesus. And then in return, we get to be the authors of our own good story. We get to be the appearance of the living Christ. We get to be ones rising from our own benches to break and bless our own loaves, to get to the warm hearts and bodies of those who shiver as we once shivered, to kneel beside the beaten man, to take residence with those lonely and despairing. You remember the story of the group of salesmen finishing their meeting in Chicago on a Friday afternoon, all of them late for their planes leaving from O'Hare Airport. Madly, they dashed through the terminal to get to their gates, and one of them inadvertently knocked into a table where a young blind girl was selling apples. This was long before when they sold apples at airports. And the table crashed, and the apples fell and rolled under the feet of all the other rushing travelers. The salesmen kept running for their planes, all except one who couldn't, who couldn't leave that poor blind girl to pick up their mess. So back he went on his hands and knees, picking up the apples one by one, taking them back to the table to the blind girl, and noticing that some of the apples were bruised and dirty, he gave her the amount he imagined all of them would be worth if she sold them. Here, he said, gently slipping a wad of cash into her hand, take this and buy as many apples as you can. Companions, if only for a moment, and and as he turned to continue his race for his plane, he heard the blind girl say, Mr., are you Jesus? Were not our hearts strangely warm? And were not our eyes finally open? Because you never know who you will bump into 